Good morning again, everybody. Thank you so much for the nice, very nice card. And, and um, you know, Cindy and I are so thankful. It's hard to believe we've been here about 12 and a half years now at Cedar Home, coming from Wyoming to Colorado to here. And we're just very thankful. We're very thankful for all of you. And um, all I can say is I, I, I love you. I want to serve you well. I'm not perfect, and thank you for your forgiveness and grace and mercy, and, and I hope that our, pla- our church can be a place where, <coughs> well, this, the cheers song comes to my head where everybody knows your name. <coughs> <laughs> that was important to me in youth ministry. It's still important to me, though, that every one of you knows that we love you. You're valuable to us here. We want you here. We want to help you in your walk with the Lord however we can. So thank you. Um, Today, this morning, I'm going to finish the, uh, talking about our church purpose statement on the front of your bulletin briefly. Uh, it says, Cedar Home Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus through gospel-centered worship, community, service, and multiplication. And I want to talk briefly about gospel-centered multiplication. This verse came to my mind this morning. 2 Timothy 2, 1-2 says... Uh, Paul writes this to Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So what this means is that God's plan for his people, his church, his kingdom, is not stagnancy, but growth and expansion, growing more widely, growing more deeply. That means together spreading the gospel more widely and together growing more deeply into Christ, more mature in Christ. And so here at Cedar Home, we wanna make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through speaking the gospel and through discipleship relationships. And we wanna develop leaders and teachers and volunteers who want to make more leaders and teachers and volunteers. We wanna make servant leaders who desire to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. We want to make community groups that have, are designed and have the understanding that we're gonna, we want to multiply for the glory of God. If God brings, make, brings enough people to our group or we're a certain size, we want to multiply so we can include others and continue to see uh, others involved in the kingdom of God. We want to be a church that multiplies and invests in planting more churches. And so our church doesn't exist to hoard the gospel for ourselves or to, to, to just gra- gather with our small group of friends. We exist to multiply the glory of God on earth by multiplying disciples who multiply disciples. And I hope you'll be part of that. Okay, um, thank you. And I would love to talk to you more about our church purpose statement. I know we had a membership meeting this morning, and, and uh, we'd love to tell you more about our church. Um, at, at the end of the month, if you're new here, at the last Sunday of every month, we have a meet the leaders time after the service um, in the lobby. And so we'd love to hang with you and get to know you. One of my favorite scholars named Don Carson writes this. All you have to do is live long enough and you will suffer. Suffering has a way of 
tearing down all the layers of the facades that we put up. Suffering has a way of breaking us down and exposing to God and to ourselves and to the world what, what's really there. I don't know about you, but when I've gone through times of, of intense suffering, I've been tempted to question everything I believe about God. Uh, I've been tempted to question God's existence, tempted to question God's good purposes, tempted to question God's kindness. When my 14-year-old nephew, Eli, who loves Jesus, uh, was diagnosed with a fast-growing type of cancer this year, our whole family was asking, why? Why Eli? And you know that, right? I could give you all sorts of theological answers why, but when you experience it, it's like, why, why? And in the months that followed, though, I was amazed at how Eli's parents, my brother and sister-in-law, publicly talked about their trust in God through it all. Uh, as they watched their little boy undergo intense chemo treatments for weeks at a time, they testified to their faith that they believe God is control and is in control and that God is kind. One of the songs that has been an encouragement to my family during this time is this musician we just found named Bob Bennett, who was like really big in the 80s, and hey, we, we love him now. But the, <clears throat> the song is called Hand of Kindness. And it talks about how even in the midst of our mistakes, even in the midst of our mess-ups, our sins, our trials, whatever we're going through, God's kind hand is holding us, it's carrying us, and it's working out his good purposes in our lives. The Apostle Paul suffered much during his ministry. And, you know, uh, we've been reading most recently about how he was attacked in Jerusalem and arrested and wrongfully imprisoned. And the Lord Jesus mercifully showed up, appeared to Paul, and stood by him inside those Roman barracks in Jerusalem. Acts 23, 11 says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must testify also in Rome. So Jesus promised Paul that no matter what human or demonic powers might try to stop Paul from traveling to Rome, right? We know there were at least two ambushes that tried to stop Paul. Um, whatever tried to stop Paul from preaching the gospel in Rome, God says, I'm going to squash those efforts. And Jesus told Paul, take courage. He assured Paul that the Lord had his back and nobody can foil the Lord's plans. God's, God's sovereignty is, is his ultimate power and his authority over all his creation, visible and invisible. And when we think about that word sovereignty, when we think about God's sovereignty and sovereign will, we might think of it as something that is cold and impersonal and inconsiderate. But if we think of God's sovereignty that way, then we have wrongly isolated God's sovereignty from his other attributes, like his kindness and his grace and his love, which are interwoven with his sovereignty. And the passage we're going to read today records the details of of Paul's dangerous sea voyage from Caesarea up to Rome, Italy. We're not going to get quite there today. 
But in this passage, we'll see how God simultaneously, at the same time, shows his sovereignty, that he's in control of it, and his kindness, too, in the midst of a very hard situation. The tender kindness of God's sovereign hand not only carried Paul, but it is what carries all of us. And so if you have your Bible with you, please open with me to Acts chapter 27. And I don't hear many pages turning, so I assume you've already, you're already there. Yep. Good. Before we read this, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for the promise that you've given us that you work all things together for good for those who love you and who've been called according to your purpose. We open your word and we just ask you, Holy Spirit, to speak through, uh, to us through your word. I pray for my brothers and sisters here that you administer to them, especially as they're in different circumstances of suffering and trials. We ask that you would build us up as your people, use us to encourage one another in faith and good deeds. We pray for the salvation of, of the lost. We pray for our loved ones and our neighbors who don't know you. And we ask, Lord, that you would protect us from the evil one. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as Paul travels from Caesarea to Rome in chapters 27 to 28, God shows his tender, sovereign kindness in at least 10 ways, and, and I'm not going to go through all those today, but we'll plan on tackling 1 through 4 today, and then 5 through 10 next Sunday, God willing. So let's start here at uh, Acts 27, 1 to 3. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. Stop there. So first, God displays his sovereign kindness here by assigning Paul to Julius, the centurion. Paul and the, the prisoners he was with in Caesarea, they could have been assigned any number of various military men to accompany them to Rome, but the Roman governor Festus chose to assign Paul to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And Julius must have been trustworthy, right? Because he was personally responsible to see that Paul arrived safely in Rome to see the emperor Nero. But simply because Julius was trustworthy, didn't require him to be kind to his subordinates. However, according to God's sovereign wisdom, verse 3 says that Julius treated Paul kindly. You know, God could certainly carry out his plans and, and get Paul from Caesarea to Rome under the watch of, of a soldier who wasn't kind. But in kindness, God assigns Paul to Julius, the centurion who acts kindly toward him. And as we read the rest of this passage today and next week, what we're going to see is that Julius is kind to Paul over and over again. 
And Julius wasn't even a Christian. What a blessing it was for Paul to have a guard who was kind to him. Kindness is, I don't know about you, it's not the first character trait I think of when I think of a Roman soldier. Kindness. In fact, kindness was seen as a weakness in the ancient world. I was thinking, how often do we thank God for the people he's put in our life who are kind to us? Maybe they're Christian, maybe they're not. But either way, God... If we believe he's sovereign, put that person in our life, and God shows us us, his kindness through that person. So it could be a kind doctor or a nurse. Have you ever been in a hospital or an emergency room, and God just put you with an amazing doctor or nurse who really cared about you? (laughs) That makes a huge difference. Um, It could be a teacher or a coach it could be your bus driver or maybe your waitress who goes out of your way, their way to serve you extra well or a neighbor who looks out for you. Kind people are a gift of grace to us from God's sovereign hand. And, and no, not everyone God puts in our lives is kind, obviously. But what a good thing it is when we experience the kindness of another person to stop and thank God for that and not take it for granted. And as Jesus' followers, I would say let's work at showing the kindness of Jesus in us to others so that other people might thank God for putting us in their lives. The second way here that God displays his sovereign kindness in verses one to three is by blessing Paul with burden-bearing Christian friends. Burden-bearing Christian friends. In Paul's letters, uh, he, he writes about times in ministry when he felt very alone, times when he was alone, times when everyone deserted him, times when nobody, not even his brothers in Christ, stood by his side. But here, as, as he travels to Rome as a prisoner, God brings alongside him some good friends who will bear his burdens with him. First, we know Luke was with him, because Luke is the one writing this. He's writing in the first person plural again, writing that we traveled to Italy. And then another Christian friend who joined Paul was this man named Aristarchus. If you remember uh, back in Ephesus when they couldn't find Paul, so they grabbed a couple of Christians and dragged them into the arena. Aristarchus was one of those. And he was from the city of Thessalonica, which was a long way uh, from where they were. And, and even though Aristarchus is not under arrest, he wants to carry the burden of Paul's imprisonment with him by sticking by Paul's side. He illustrates for us what Galatians 6.2 looks like, I think, where Christians are instructed to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And in addition to having these two good friends who stayed by Paul's side, verse 3 says that Julius allows Paul to go visit his friends in Sidon, where they care for him. And, and what the believers in Sidon did there to care for him, we, we don't know. Uh, but what we uh, might guess is that they, they fed him, they prayed for him, uh, they made sure that he had what he needed to travel to Rome as comfortably as possible. Uh, the fact that they, they care for Paul in his imprisonment shows us that they want to help Paul carry his burdens too. And, 
And so these Christian friends inside and along with Luke and Aristarchus, they must have been a great encouragement to Paul. Uh, they were a gift of God um, to Paul, and they were an evidence of God's sovereign kindness. These were burden-bearing friends. Recently, I was talking to a woman who said that her child was going through a difficult time. Her child was struggling with a reoccurring sinful behavior that she didn't seem to be able to control. And the mom said, I want her to know that this problem isn't just her problem, it's our problem. We're a team, we're gonna work together side by side to defeat this sinful behavior with God's help. And, and I, as I heard that, I thought, wow. That's what it looks like for Christians to bear one another's burdens. Can, and I thought, can you imagine how the lives of the people in our church would be changed if we dealt with our sins and struggles like that? Because it would mean that we would be humble and honest with one another about our trials, about the sins we're struggling with. It would mean that we don't look down on others or disregard one another's struggles, but that we take time to sympathize with one another. It means that we would see the struggles of each other as our own struggles. It would mean that all of us in here would know that we are not isolated or alone in what we're facing. It would mean that my cancer journey is not just my cancer journey, it's our cancer journey. It would mean that my path to sobriety is not just my path to sobriety, but it's the path I'm walking alongside other Christians who care for me. It'd mean that my grief is not just mine to bear and it's all on my back and it's overwhelming and I don't know if I can do it, but it means my Christian friends are close by my side. They're carrying my grief with me. They're experiencing it with me. This is what the Lord wants our relationships to look like as brothers and sisters in Christ. We all need burden-bearing friends. And if Christ is in us, then we should seek to be burden-bearing friends for one another. Now it takes time and intentionality to develop friendships that grow into burden-bearing friendships. And for most of us here, if you come here for a year straight, these types of relationships probably are not gonna be formed on a Sunday morning. It's just reality. Burden-bearing friendships are made and developed when we intentionally spend hours every week with one another. And this is why community groups and discipleship relationships are so important for each one of us. Think about your own best friends. Like if you had best friends when you were a kid, how many hours did you spend together with them? Think about that. Most likely it wasn't probably somebody you saw once every eight weeks or once every six weeks or even once a week. But I remember spending hours during the week with, with some of my best friends. We want those kind of friendships for you here at Cedar Home where your friendships, though, revolve around Jesus Christ. And we're trying, and as, as church leaders, we want to provide as many opportunities as we can because obviously we can't do that for you. And so um, last Sunday we had a great after-church potluck. We plan to do another one next month where you can meet other Christians and, and, and fellowship together. We had a great men's ministry night um, about 40 men on Friday night just fellowshipping and, and hearing a message. Uh, we, we would love for you to get into one of our community groups. We've got nine right now that meet during the week. 
You can pick up a flyer at the information table in the lobby after the service to read about our groups. Um, and we design our community groups at Cedar Home to be open groups, meaning you can join any of them at any time during the year. Or I encourage you, like, was, like uh, Dan already said, help us with our no tricks, just treats event. I found one of the best ways to meet people is by serving with people. <clears throat> Doing something meaningful together. But one of the ways God displays his sovereign kindness is by putting Christians in our lives who bear our burdens with us. And those friendships were a great blessing to Paul. And I hope that uh, we will bless one another the same way. Let's keep reading here to see how else God displays his sovereignty and kindness in this passage on Paul's sea voyage. Uh, verses 4 to 8 has a lot of names and places that might not mean much to us. And so I'm putting this map on the screen that shows us where they were. Now, I don't know if you can see it with me standing here, so I'll move over here. Um, <clears throat> basically, Paul's moving from the east to the west, okay? So Sidon's over here. That's where he's hanging with his friends for a little bit. And what they're going to do is they're going to get on a small ship that can, they can kind of hang near the coast for a little bit. And then when they get to the city of Myra and Lycia there, they're going to get on a big ship that's seaworthy and can cross the Mediterranean Sea. And so <clears throat> let's read about it. Acts 27, 4 to 8. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Now, some of you are sailors, right? Some of you really know about boats. I had to learn this. Under the lee of means under the protection of. So the wind's blowing this way, so they go this way so that they're protected by the island. And so maybe all of you knew that already, but I thought I'd share it. Um, it says, uh, because the winds were against us, and when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. Now look where Nidus is. It's right there. That's not very far because <laughs> they're going up here. Okay, so that the winds were really strong. It says, and as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. So they're like, we can't go this way anymore, so now we gotta go down under Crete because that's gonna protect us from the wind. And as the wind, uh, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni, coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia there on Crete, okay? <clears throat> Maybe I should remember to bring a pointer next time, but... <clears throat> Kind of felt like a weatherman there, pointing out the, the map, the skin. Well, um, so commentator Tony Merida notes that under good conditions, it would take five weeks to transfer Paul to Rome from Caesarea to uh, up there to Rome. This journey would end up taking over four months. So instead of one month and a little bit extra, this journey takes four months. Part of that has to do with the time of year that they they leave. Um, later we'll read there were 276 men on this ship that he was on. They were sailors, they were soldiers, and they were prisoners. And they're sailing in late fall. And you don't want to be sailing the Mediterranean much later than late fall because 
It gets stormy and dangerous. And they've made it to this harbor on the south side of Crete. And probably I read that Paul had more experience than most people on the ship because he'd done this several times. He crossed the Mediterranean on his mission trips. And now he tries to talk the captain of the ship into waiting this out. He's like, because this is dangerous if you try to go any farther. Let's read uh, in verses 9 to 20. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. So it's talking about its emergency boat. It's a life raft, life raft kind of thing. It's, it's boat. They secured that because that was probably sinking. Um, after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship, ropes or cables as reinforcements on the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, which was a, a sandbar, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So the captain of the ship did not take Paul's advice. The ship was blown into the middle of the storm in the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and they decided, you know, this is getting really bad. The ship's gonna, not going to make it. We've got to start throwing overboard. Uh, it would have been grain because I think the ship they got was, it says it was from Alexandria, North Egypt. And Rome had a deal with Egypt where Egypt would send grain, export grain to Rome. And so this was their ship. So they were throwing grain overboard. And then it says they were also throwing tackle overboard and and there's a lot of different thoughts about what that meant exactly, but it could have been parts of the boat itself. They're just like, they just want to try to stay afloat and survive this thing. Um, and then also, you know, in those days, how did you navigate? By the sun and the stars. And so it's the storm, it, it's cloudy. They can't see those. And, and so they are just floating around, tossed by the waves at the mercy of God here. So let's see what happens here graciously how God intervenes in verses 21 to 26. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. 
And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told, but we must run aground on some island. And what you read, sorry, it's not funny, okay? But what you read later on is this. A lot of the people didn't know how to swim. Okay, so it's not funny. So they were scared, right? What I think, sorry, the reason I laughed is because he says, you're all going to survive, but the ship's not going to make it. And I'm just thinking in their head, how's this going to work, right? Um, But we see his kindness here. The third way that God displays his sovereign kindness is by sending this angel to Paul with his encouraging message, a promise. And if you remember, like we talked about, the Lord earlier stood by Paul in prison. Now it says that he sends an angel to stand by Paul. And the angel tells Paul three things. First, do not be afraid. Second, you must stand before Caesar. And third, God has granted you all those who sail with you. 270, I believe the number, is it 274 or 276? We'll find it. But that exact number, um, none will be lost. And the angel tells Paul, Paul, don't be afraid of everything you see going around you right now. Don't be afraid of these waves that are crashing, trying to break up this ship, because God has declared you must stand before Caesar. You will not die on this ship, Paul. And more than that, God has graciously granted everyone on the ship's gonna survive this. And so, God sent Paul, this angel here, to help Paul keep his eyes on Jesus, and then also, to bless everyone else on board through Paul, which is our next point, okay? The fourth way God displays his sovereign kindness is by using Paul to declare great news of salvation to everyone aboard the ship. And the the, the great news of salvation that God declares to these troubled men through Paul is both temporary and eternal in nature. The part that most of them probably care about is the temporary part. Take heart, an angel of the Lord has promised me that everyone on board is gonna survive this storm. And whether the men, many of these guys believed Paul at this point, we don't know. Nonetheless, we who know God know what a gracious promise this is, that God has willed or determined that everyone on board is gonna live. And most of these men were not Christians. Most were not Jewish. These were not even God-fearers. It doesn't say anything about that. Yet God has willed that all of them be rescued from the tempest. This is great news for them regarding this temporary storm that they're in. And in addition to the great news about their temporary circumstances, God also uses Paul to declare great news to them that is more eternal in nature. It's more subtle, but it's there. And we'll see it fleshed out the more we get into the passage. But look here at how Paul describes God in verse 23. How does Paul describe God? For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. So even though the passage doesn't explicitly say this, we, knowing what we know about Paul, 
we can imagine that up to this point, as he was sitting with all these men on the ship for hours and hours on end, for days and days on end, for weeks and weeks on end, he probably had, talking to, had spoken to some of them about Jesus and the gospel, knowing Paul. And now Paul essentially tells everybody, you guys, I told you, Jesus is real. And let me tell you how great he is. He's sovereign over the weather and over all people and over all animals and over all angels and demons. And the angels bowed down to Jesus. And Jesus sent one of his angels to me to prove that Jesus is still alive, that his promises are still true, and that he's safely going to deliver all of us to Rome. Wow. And then look at the unusual way here that Paul describes his relationship with God. Paul says that this is the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Now, it's not peculiar that uh, Paul would describe the Lord as the God whom he worships. Everyone on that ship worshiped gods. Um, These were Gentiles. These were Romans, most likely. They had dozens of gods that they worshiped. But Paul's relationship to his God, singular, is much different than the Romans' relationships to their gods, plural. See, Paul says that he belongs to God. Some translations say this, the God whose I am. The God whose I am. Possessive. In other words, God owns Paul. God purchased Paul. God has bound Paul to himself. That is quite a claim for Paul to say. So how can he say this? Why does he say this? Only because of what Jesus, the true God, accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection for his people. That is the only grounds Paul has for claiming this, okay? See, God is not a God who merely appeals to people. God is a God who owns people. The Bible doesn't describe Jesus as the good shepherd who died on the cross hoping that some, of the, some sheep would be saved. Instead, the Bible describes Jesus as the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep, whom, it says, he says, God the Father had already given to him. And by dying for them, Jesus purchases them with his own blood as his redeemed people. God owns every, everything, right? In one sense. But in the special, redemptive, blood-bought way Jesus purchases his church. Let's read how Jesus speaks about this in John 10, 27 to 30. Jesus said, my sheep, again, possessive, my sheep, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Twice in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to the Christians, live holy lives because you were bought with a price. 
And it is because Jesus bought Paul when he died for him on the cross that Paul can say, I belong to this God. This Jesus who sent an angel to us, this Jesus who has all power over this storm, he owns me, I am his and he is mine. And if you trust in Jesus, this is your reality too. Isn't that amazing? You belong to God. He sealed you with the blood of Jesus. You could say that Jesus owns you and that nothing can ever snatch you out of his hand. <laughs> it doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean you won't go through storms. It's not the message of the passage. It doesn't mean that God is going to answer all of our prayers exactly how we want him to. But because we belong to God, because Jesus purchased us by dying for us and rising for us, we can know that God is with us in our storms, holding us, securing us next to himself. And he's not only with us, but he's for us. And however these earthly storms that we're in turn out, they will not have the last eternal word for us. And as we've talked about the past few weeks about resurrection and the importance of that, the vitality, the centrality of that to Paul's message, we see it again here. Resurrection, the idea of future resurrection coming is central to the gospel. It means that earthly storms will not have eternal victory over us. So Christian, it means that when this life is over for you, either when God ends your time here and calls you home, or whether you're, sorry, whether you're 90 years old or whether you're one day old, what it means is this. Jesus is going to bring you to himself because you are his. What does he say to the sheep and the goats? He says, get away from me, goats. I never knew you. Jesus knows his sheep. He calls them. He loves them. He died for them. He will wipe away your tears. He will heal you. He will restore you. And praise God, that's not only a future truth, but because he's left the Holy Spirit here with us, because we have the promises of his word, the church together, we have many tools by which we're going to make it safely to the city of God. And how can you be sure of that? Well, not because I said it. Because of promises like Romans 8, 28 to 30. Which says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In Christ, your future glory is done. It's as good as done. You haven't experienced it temporally yet, but because of Jesus, he's purchased you and redeemed you. All of these parts, the the predestined, called, uh, justified, glorified, they all fall under the umbrella of salvation. Salvation isn't just conversion to Christ. Salvation includes conversion in all of your sanctification and your glorification, okay? 
That's great news. <laughs> that is awesome news for those of us who trust in Jesus. And, and when you look at this passage, when Paul says this, that he, he belonged to God, who was he talking to? Non-Christians. And we don't know if he said this in order to spark their curiosity or if he was just kind of saying this as a matter of fact. But whatever his purpose is, we know this. For us today, the gospel is not changed and God exhorts, urges every one of you today to come to him. He calls his sheep to himself saying, come to me, all who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I don't know what storms, all the storms that you're going through right now, but I can promise you this, just as we sang earlier, the only sure and steady anchor in the storm is Jesus Christ. Can you say with confidence today that you belong to him? And what Jesus says is come to me. Turn away from everything else and turn to me and make me your anchor and I will make you my child. Man, Jesus' ownership, knowing that Paul, he was owned by Jesus, this must have been, it must have just given Paul great peace as he hunkered down in this ship as it was tossed back and forth in the Mediterranean Sea, knowing that you are owned by God and accepted by God through Jesus Christ today should give you great peace. There's a poster hanging in my office with these words on it because it's comforting to me it's my hope when I'm lying on my deathbed, if I get to have a deathbed. My one comfort, both in life and death, is that I'm not my own. I was bought with blood, and I confess I belong to Christ alone. That's my hope, and I hope it's yours too. It's not my grip on God, it's God's grip on me that I'm hoping on. Let's review the four ways here that God displayed his sovereign kindness during Paul's sea voyage to Rome. First, God assigned Paul to Julius, the centurion, who was very kind to Paul. Second, God blessed Paul with burden-bearing Christian friends. Third, God sent an angel to Paul with an encouraging promise. And fourth, God used Paul to declare great news of salvation to everyone aboard the ship. This week, I just pray that God would would give all of us eyes to see his kindness in our lives and trust in his sovereignty at the same time. And may God use us as his body to show the kindness of Christ to other people too. All right, would you please stand with me and I'll, I'll close this in prayer. Thank you for being here. Lord, we thank you that we can call upon your name and know that you are kind, uh, long-suffering, 
patient with us. That you love us. We pray, Lord, that as we think about these images of you, God, being our anchor, being our peace in the middle of the storm, being the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, being the one who owns us, that we would thank you for that, that you would give us peace in the midst of our storms because we can trust and believe that you are true to your promises and that you are alive and reigning. Lord, we just pray, Holy Spirit, for a revival in our families, in our community, in our country, and around the world. We pray, Lord, that all would see your awesome glory and kindness, that you would call your people through that and that many people from all people groups of the earth will be saved. And please, Lord, use us as your agents and vessels, God, to do that. No one person does it all. You've put each one of us here on a purpose. Um, You've appointed the times and places for us to live. And so, God, as we go to work tomorrow or school tomorrow, wherever, help us to have eyes to see the people around us, to pray for them, to have conversations with them, to show them kindness. Help us to love you in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you.